I want to welcome everyone to Grace Community Church this morning, and specifically to our continuing study of the book of Genesis together. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn this morning to Genesis 27. Genesis 27. And as brothers and sisters in Christ all across the room, we're going to go together to our Father in Heaven in the name of Jesus, and we're going to ask the Lord to speak to us today. Let's pray. Lord, we come to You today and we proclaim to You, Lord, in prayer what we just sung to You, God, in praise. That You are the Lord our God, the Mighty One, the Warrior, the King forever. And yet You are our God that You have given Yourself to us fully and finally in Jesus Christ. You are the Lord our God and we worship You today. God, we thank You for Your great salvation that You've given us in Jesus Christ. And even as we stand in Your presence today, Lord, and sing Your praise, God, we're reminded of Your worthiness, Lord. Your majesty, Your glory, God. You are worthy to be praised. And we are Your people. God, we so desire to bring to You, Lord, pure worship, God. Worship from the heart, Lord, and not just from our lips. Pure sacrifices of praise that declare to You the glory of Your own name. And God, we long for more. God, we long for more of Your glory to be seen in all the earth, Lord. And we long for that coming day, God, when You tell us that there's coming this day that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will be like water that covers the sea. Worthy to be praised. You are worthy to be praised, Lord. And we come to You today as a local church, and we ask to be sanctified by Your Word. Lord, we want to be set apart more and more holy unto You, the Lord our God. And so we ask for You to speak to us today as our Father in Heaven. Lord, give us what we need today. Show us Christ Lord, bow our hearts to Jesus Christ this morning. Give us eyes to see the glory of Christ this morning, Lord. Make us glad today in the Gospel. Remind us of just how glorious the good news of Jesus really is. God, humble us today in Your presence. And we ask that You would kindle worship in our hearts this morning as we give attention to Your Word. This is our prayer today. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Alright, we're back in the book of Genesis together. And many times, you have been reminded by myself and Ron, in many ways, that the book of Genesis is a family history. It's a family story. You could call it, you could even call it a family drama. Okay? It zones in on one man, Abraham, in his descendants. The book of Genesis is a family drama. But here's the catch. When we say that Genesis is a family story and a family drama, it's not like any other family story or family drama that you've ever seen. Okay? We have this unfortunate modern day reality of what is called um, reality TV shows. <laughs> and, and, and some of these TV shows, they'll zone in on a particular individual are this one particular family, and you can spend countless hours of your life watching the happenings of this one particular family, and at the end of the day, it doesn't profit you at all because it has absolutely nothing to do with you, your life, or anything to do with your family. And so we want to understand the book of Genesis is not like that. It zones in on one particular family, and it, and, and it gives us a snapshot of the happenings of this particular family. But when we're dealing with the family of Abraham, there's nothing that happens in this family that is insignificant to you or insignificant to your family. 
Remember, we're dealing with the chosen line. That this family, Abraham and his descendants, they were marked off by the sovereign choice of God. That this family and this family alone would be the ones who would bring forth, they would be the royal lineage that would bring forth the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we lean in to, to the book of Genesis, and we see God's dealing with this family, this is not about entertainment, okay? This is not about scratching our entertainment itch and seeing what God's doing with Abraham and his family this week. This is about edification. This is about the Word of God singling off this family for sovereign purposes. And it's, and it, and it's applicable to every family in the world in every generation of time. And so we're going to zone in this morning on another one of these events. Genesis 27. And the way that God deals with Abraham and his family in Genesis 27 is going to give give us a glimpse that this is still true today. This is how God deals with his people, and we are his people in Jesus Christ. This is our God, our Father in heaven. And so we're going to lean into this text this morning, and we're going to ask God by the power of the Spirit to reveal, give us a glimpse of the glory of Christ and the character of of our God. So as we jump in, at this particular point in Genesis, God's blessing has been passed down from the original patriarch, Abraham, and that blessing has now been passed down to Isaac, and what we're in the middle of in Genesis 27 is this competition that has developed between Isaac's two sons, competition between Jacob and Esau. And we've been working towards this this climax that we're going to see that's going to bring some finality to to this struggle between Isaac's two sons. And we're going to see Jacob walk away from this story as the solitary heir, the blessed blessed heir of Isaac. He's going to receive those messianic blessings. So it's going to be Abraham, Isaac, and not Esau, but we look back, and he's, throughout Scripture, God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is going to seal the deal for the inheritance. Genesis chapter 27. And we're actually going to pick it up this morning in the very last verse of Genesis chapter 26. Let's read our text together this morning. This is the Word of God. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Bereed the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Chapter 27. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau his older son, and he said to him, My son, and he answered, Here I am. And he said, Behold, I am old, and I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food, such as I love, and bring it to me, so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. And so we come in on this scene this morning in the Word of God, and we see Isaac, the son of Abraham, and we see him approaching death. He's an old man, and he's approaching death, and he doesn't know when he's going to die. And just like every other patriarch in this ancient Near Eastern culture, he's ready to make it clear who the heir is. He's ready to make that clear. And normally, automatically, this would have been his firstborn son, Esau. And that's what he does in this text. He sees death drawing near, he gathers his firstborn son to himself, and he's ready to bless him. He's ready to pass on the inheritance. And normally, this would have been the way things were done. But there's two important things that have already happened at this point in Genesis that drag into Genesis chapter 27. And those two important things are this. If we go back into Genesis chapter 25, 
we remember that God gave a prophetic word that reversed the normal way that this would have been done. So the normal way that this inheritance would have been passed on, like we said in the ancient Near East, is that the blessing, the double portion, goes to the firstborn. But you remember that prophecy that God gave about these two boys while they were still in the womb. In Genesis chapter 25, verse 23, the Lord said, The older shall serve the younger. Before either were born, before either did good or bad, God selected Jacob to have supremacy over Esau, his older brother. God reversed the birth order. It wouldn't be the firstborn in this particular case. It would be the younger, and the older would serve the younger. And then you remember in that same chapter, something something else develops in that same chapter. Not only do we have the prophetic word of God that singles out Jacob, we see that Esau, in that chapter, he disqualifies himself from this privilege of inheritance as the firstborn. And we remember just just a couple of weeks ago as we walked through that text of Scripture that we see the character of Esau revealed. And that text tells us in the very last words of Genesis chapter 25 that he despised his birthright. And we remember how that story goes, that in in a moment of famine, he, he, he despised these messianic promises of God and he sold them to his younger brother for a bowl of soup. He showed himself to be a worldly man, unconcerned about these glorious messianic promises that God had given to Abraham and then to Isaac. And he spurned them and he turned his back, not only on his father by despising the birthright, but he turned his back on his, on his father's God, on Yahweh, the Lord God. So he, so he showed himself in chapter 25 to be the apostate son. And we even see that this theme continues in that last verse that we read of chapter 26. Esau begins taking unto himself, we had the mention of two different pagan wives. These are Hittite women. Okay, The very descendants that Abraham told his servant, do not get a wife for my son from the Hittites. Esau begins to amass for himself. Hittite wives. This is another indication that he's, he's, he's full-out pagan. He's turned his back on the covenant of God. He's turned his back on Yahweh, the one true God. He could care less about these glorious promises that have been given to this family. He's disqualified, and he continues to show himself as disqualified, even as we enter into chapter 27. Now, when we get to chapter 27 and we see... Isaac's plan of what he's about to do, we have to drag these things in. That he's about to bless Esau in spite of those two things. In spite of the word of God and in spite of the apostate character of his son, he's ready to give Esau the blessing anyway. He's ready to bless disqualified Esau anyway. Now, in New Testament language... We would call Isaac a believer. He's a believer. He's saved. He's part of the righteous. He's in heaven. He's with Jesus right now. He's Isaac. And yet in this passage, we see that he is living in rebellion to the word of God. So you have a believer in Acts 27, a believer in sin. God said the older will serve the younger. And Isaac says, no, 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 I'm going to bless the firstborn. I'm going to bless the older. Now, why would this man do this? This is important for us to understand. If he's a believer and he's in sin, one of the things that we take from the Old Testament is we learn not only these positive lessons, but these negative lessons that the Old Testament gives us. Examples to refrain from. Why would this man do this? Well, the author of Genesis gives us a hint earlier in chapter 25, and he tells us explicitly in chapter 27. If we go back to chapter 25, verse 28, we read these words. Isaac loved Esau because he ate 
of his game. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. Now, that language in Genesis 25 is not just the normal parental love for a child. This is preferential favoritism that, that Isaac was giving Esau, and it tells us why. Because of his game. And there's really not any good reason in, in, in all the Word of God for you to prefer one of your children to another of your children. Favoritism is despised in the Word of God. This is sin before God. So there's not a good reason to do it, but let's just talk about one of the worst reasons you can imagine to love one son and hate the other would be, he's a really good cook. He kills stuff, and he puts it in a pot, and it's like magic in my mouth, and I love him so much. And yet, that's exactly what we're told, that he loved Esau because he ate of his game. And then we get to chapter 27, and that theme is repeated again. And he says, he, he speaks about Esau is to go, in verse 4, and prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, and that my soul may bless you before I die. Now, why does the author of Genesis give attention to that theme? Chapter 25, he tells us. Chapter 27, he tells us again that something about Esau in this food that he loves. And what's being presented here is that Isaac is walking in sensuality. In this part of his life, he's being governed by these fleshly desires, these primal urges. He's not being guided by the Spirit of God. He's being guided by his flesh. His God in this particular instance of his life is his stomach. This is his sin, sensuality. He's concerned with time and not eternity. He wants to eat that food. He wants to eat that food. Now, this is helpful for us. Because as we see these mighty men of faith held forth as examples for us in Scripture... On the backside, we also see, and the Bible doesn't hide this, we see their dirt. We see their sins before God. And when everything is over, the Bible has one hero. It's the Lord Jesus Christ and no one else. And we're reminded, even as we read the story of Isaac, that, that even the best of men, even Isaac, they're just men. Even the best of men, they're just men. At the end of the day. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 Verse 6, it reminds us that as we read examples like this, we're supposed to remember in the presence of God as we read the Word of God, Lord, I'm not above this either. I'm supposed to take heed because I'm not above falling into this sin either. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6. These things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. So here's what we have. We have Isaac the believer. Think about what we know about him in Genesis. This is the hero son of Mount Moriah. You remember that story in Genesis 22? God tells Abraham to take his only son, his beloved son, to the the mount. Tells him to offer him up as an offering by fire to Yahweh. A burnt offering. Nothing would be left of the chosen son, the beloved son. Abraham is an old man in that story. We remember that interchange between father and son where son looks to father and says, where is the sacrifice? And the father says, the Lord will provide the lamb. And we see in that story a picture of a faithful father that refuses to put anything above the word of God in his life, even his beloved son. And in that story, we even get the picture of Isaac's obedience in that he's, he's presented to us as a young son, but his father's an old man, and more than likely he's, will, he's a willing participant to obey the Word of God on Mount Moriah in Genesis 22. And then look at him now. The hero of Mount Moriah is putting food above the prophetic Word of God. And we need to take heed. We need to take heed that we might not desire evil as he did. He had an Achilles heel his whole life, and what it was is he had this sinful 
preference for his older sons. And we know he had it for quite a long time because he had it all the way back in Genesis 25. And what we're going to see God do in Isaac's life in Genesis 27, among other things, one of the things we're going to see the Lord do is we're going to see the Lord draw near and he's going to tear down this idol in this man's life. It's going to fall to the ground. And we need to take heed about the sin in the life of believers because what we see in the patriarch's life is that because he's given over to this sin, this sinful preference for Esau in opposition to the word of God, he wreaks havoc in his family. He wreaks havoc in his family. You remember that prophecy in Genesis 25, that prophetic sign that the the children are fighting in the womb and even as they're delivered, they're still struggling. Remember that. Lifelong battle, Jacob versus Esau. Well, let's talk about how to throw gas on the match of that struggle between two brothers. And that's to have parents pitted against each other in favoritism. I prefer this one. No, I prefer this one. His sin affected his family. His sin affected his family. And think about this. Just to drive this warning in to your, to your responsibilities before God as a parent. How do you think his example in this particular place of his life, how do you think it affected his son Esau? The one who was apostate, the one who turned his back on Yahweh for a bowl of soup, how do you think it affected him to have a daddy who knew the word of God, who knew that prophetic prophecy, and yet loved him anyway because he cooked really good food? It was a place of compromise in his life, and it affected his family wreaked havoc in his family. So we're about to see this idol come crashing down. And the reason it's crashing down is that his wife, Rebecca, she's listening to this plan. She knows what's about to happen, and she's got a plan to snatch this blessing away from Esau and give it to her son, Jacob, instead. Let's pick it up again in verse 5. Now Rebecca was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock And bring me two good young goats, so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father, such as he loves. She knows about his idol too. Delicious food, such as he loves. Verse 10, and you will bring it to your father to eat, so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go and bring them to me. Verse 14, So he went and took them and brought them to his mother. And his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in her house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goat she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hands of her son, Jacob. So he went in to his father and he said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game, that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? And he answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near that I may feel you my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him 
and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, Are you really my son Esau? And he answered, I am. Then he said, Bring it near to me, that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him, and he ate, and he brought him wine, and he drank. All right, as we can tell from this story, and we're going to keep plowing our way through, that the one common thread to this story is there's no heroes in it. Everybody in this narrative is sinning against God. Let me say that again. Everybody in this story is sinning against the Lord. There are no heroes in this story. And that's important for us to remember, and we'll come and we'll, and we'll, and we'll follow up with the reason why. And so we've already talked this morning about Isaac's sin and his preference for Esau in opposition to the Word of God. And we talked a little about Esau's sin and his disqualifying character and even continuing to amass pagan wives for himself that grieved his godly mama and daddy. And then we come to Rebekah. Now think about how things have fallen in the book of Genesis, okay? This is that match made in heaven marriage in Genesis 24. Match made in heaven. This is, this is Rebecca. She's the female version of Abraham in the book of Genesis. She's the one that because of the word of God, she leaves her homeland. She leaves her father's house. She leaves everything that she knows behind because of the word of God. She's got faith. She's got faith. This is Rebecca. It's the woman where they lock eyes in Genesis 24 and her husband's meditating in the field. And then look how this marriage has deteriorated. She falls into sin of such the degree that she's the one who hatches this plan to deceive, catch it, her basically blind husband. Basically blind husband. She's the one who hatches this plot. And in verse 13, she even calls curses down on herself. Remember, that's what slowed Jacob down. What if I get a curse instead of a blessing? And she says, no, 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 let your curse be on me instead. Think about her sin in this particular story. And then we come to Jacob. And for all intents and purposes, he is the main character in Genesis 27, Jacob. And I want us to think about his sin. I want us to think about his sin this morning. In this text, we're shown that he is willing to do anything, and literally anything, to obtain this blessing and to outdo his brother Esau. And we see sin bring Jacob to his knees. And this pathetic story that he goes in to his blind daddy and he says these words. His dad says, who are you? And he says, I am Esau. He's standing before his father. This is an honor culture in the ancient Near East. He's standing before the patriarch who is everything to the family. He's standing in his presence right in front of his face and he lies to him to his face. Breaks the command of God. Takes the law of God and he snaps it right over, right over his knee. I am Esau, is what he says. He's willing to deceive. And then listen, it doesn't even stop there. And sin never does, right? Sin increases. Sin wants to master you. And look at what he says in verse 20. It's bad enough, right, that he goes into his blind daddy and he's tricking a blind man, basically. And then he drags the name of the Lord into the midst of his sin in verse 20. Jacob, Isaac asked, asked Jacob, and he says, how'd you do this so quickly? And Jacob says in verse 20, the Lord your God has granted me success. He just took the matchless name of God, the name that is above every name, and he dragged that matchless name into his sin. And in scripture, that's called blaspheming. He just blasphemed God. He broke two of the Ten Commandments. 
He lied and then he took the name of the Lord in vain. And everything about this story, Jacob is guilty and he deserves, listen, he deserves to die. He just took the name of God and attached it to his sin. He deserves to die. And yet, his sinful plot, it works. It works. And he wins the blessing of his father. And we'll pick it up again in verse 26. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers. And may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you. And blessed be everyone who blesses you. This is the blessing that transfers from the father to the heir. And we talked about this in Genesis 25 quite a bit. We have to remember okay, that this is not just any old you know, reality TV show into some ancient Near Eastern family, right? This is the chosen lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not just a random story of an ancient Near Eastern family when the inheritance was passed on to the chosen heir. There's a very specific inheritance in this family. They're the messianic promises. There's there's a spiritual heritage that's being passed down. These blessings, those spiritual promises that we've talked so much about in the book of Genesis. And this blessing is a fulfillment. It's a transfer of these promises to the next generation from Isaac to Jacob. And this blessing is the fulfillment of that prophecy that God made in the womb of Rebekah, that the older will serve the younger. This is the fulfillment here, that God's word is true. Even though Isaac tried to go against it, God's word is true. The older will serve the younger. The blessing was given to Jacob. But if we look at the words of this blessing, this goes way beyond that prophecy, the older will serve the younger. Way beyond that. This is more than Esau will serve Jacob. And if you remember last week, Ryan reminded us about these messianic promises in the book of Genesis. And if you remember last week, he reminded us that these messianic promises, they basically have Two dimensions in the book of Genesis. There's a land promise, there's a seed promise. And he traced that out for us last week. And what we need to see here is that Isaac's blessing of Jacob, it follows that two-dimensional framework of land promise and seed promise. Look at verse 27. Look at these words. Field, dew, fatness, grain, and wine. Listen to all those things that that the blessing bestowed on the chosen heir. And what is this? What is this? This this is a description of what life is going to be like in that land that God promised to Abraham and to his chosen seed. It's going to be like this. A field that the Lord has blessed. Dew, fatness, grain, and wine. This is abundance that God has marked off to give His people In the promised land, this is a bestowal of these messianic blessings that he's going to stand in this line, that the promised land is given to this line through Isaac. And then in verse 29, we see him transfer to this seed promise, this offspring promise in verse 29. Way more than just Esau will obey you, he does say that. He says in verse 29, Be Lord over your brothers. May your mother's sons bow down to you. But look at what he says before that. He says, Let peoples serve you. Let nations bow down to you. He's bestowing with these words political supremacy. These are words of dominion and and, and kingdom. That that, that there's going to be the chosen seed. The offspring will rule. Nations will rule. 
serve you. Not just your brothers, but nations will serve you. And so we have the land promise, and we have the seed promise. In this blessing transferred from Isaac to Jacob. And another way to say that is we have the promise of a kingdom, and we have a promise of a king. And the blessing that Isaac gives to his son Jacob. And listen, this becomes the framework through which we read the rest of the Old Testament. God's going to give a kingdom, and God's going to give a king. And we know from our position in redemptive history, we know that the full and final fulfillment of these promises, they're messianic because they're fulfilled in Jesus Christ. When Jesus came, guess what happened? God gave a king. In Jesus Christ. When Jesus came, guess what happened? The kingdom of God has come when Jesus has come. It's this framework of king and kingdom, land and seed. These are the messianic promises being passed on to the next generation. So Jacob's scheme, it works. It works. And then we see the aftermath of this deceitful plot. In verse 30, as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac his father, Esau his brother came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game, that you may bless me. And his father Isaac said to him, Who are you? And he answered, I'm your son, your firstborn Esau. Verse 33, Then Isaac trembled very violently, and he said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came, and I have blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing. And Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and now behold, he has taken away my blessing. And then he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him lord over you and all of his brothers. I have given to him for servants, and with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? And Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and he wept. And then Isaac his father answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall be your dwelling, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. And when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Verse 41. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away. Until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you have done to him, and then I will sin and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? In verse 33, we read these words that when Isaac realizes what's happened, 
the text tells us in verse 33 that he trembled very violently. He trembled very violently. The scriptures tell us that when God disciplines a man with rebukes for sin, that our God consumes like a moth what is precious to him. And this is what is happening to Jacob, that his lifelong idol, this pet sin that he's nursed his entire life, when he realizes that the blessing has fallen to Jacob instead of Esau, it so crushes this man that he trembles very violently before God. And then we read these words in verse 33, Yes, and he shall be blessed. Yes, and he shall be blessed. And this is what we need to understand about this blessing that was passed on from Isaac to Jacob. Is that when he spoke those words, this wasn't just, you know, any old man in any ancient Near Eastern family speaking to his son. Not only was this the sworn oath, but these are words of prophecy from God. When he says that over his son Jacob, he's a prophet, not speaking the words of man merely. He's speaking the very words of God. And he knows that. And Hebrews 11 tells us that he speaks over both of his sons in faith. And he invokes something upon them in faith. These are prophetic words, therefore, they're irrevocable. There's there's no way after, after this is done that Isaac can say, you know what, I changed my mind. This was the word of God that came off of his lips. Yes, and he shall be blessed. This is a prophecy. And then we come to Esau. And think about how heartbreaking this is. Think about how heartbreaking this is that we see a grown man standing before his daddy, begging for his daddy's blessing. Think of how heartbreaking this story is. He's weeping at the feet of his father, And listen, when he realizes he's played fast and loose with the birthright his entire life, and when this story happens and that blessing is given in an irrevocable way, he knows when his daddy says those words, yes, and he shall be blessed. He knows that that birthright and that blessing has passed him by forever. There's no more chance to have it. It's not his anymore. And think about this, all this time that has passed between Genesis 25 and Genesis 27, where he turned his back on Yahweh and he despised this birthright. All this time has passed and Esau never weeped. He never repented of his sin. And we're drawn into this moment of time where all of a sudden he begins to realize that it's passed him by forever. And the text says this in verse 34. This is a grown man cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry. Think about how descriptive God's Word is. It wants you to be there in that moment. If you were there, this is what you would have heard. An exceedingly great and bitter cry. And Hebrews is clear on this point. That this exceedingly great and bitter cry, it's not a cry of repentance. Even this is not a cry of repentance in Esau's life. What this man is sorrowful for is for the wrong thing. It's for the wrong thing. He's not sorry he turned his back on Yahweh. He's not overcome with godly grief. He's overcome with the reality that this right of firstborn has passed him by forever. And he'll never have another chance to receive it. And the writer of Hebrews tells us that he never found repentance, though he sought it with tears. Though he sought it with tears. A great, exceedingly great, and bitter cry. And this is a lesson for us. This is an insight into that 2 Corinthians 7 grid of godly sorrow and worldly sorrow over sin. Esau is is the paradigm in all of Scripture of worldly sorrow. Broken, but for the wrong reasons. Broken, but for the wrong reasons. He begs his father for a blessing. I want you to be there in that moment. You're Isaac. You know you've sinned. Your sin has been reproved by the providential work 
of God. You know it. You know that it came irrevocably and, and with finality the blessing was given to Jacob instead of Esau. And all of a sudden you see your grown son weeping before you saying, Bless me, Daddy. Do you only have one blessing? Bless me, Daddy. And then we see Isaac give Esau his blessing. And really it's, it's hard to even call it a blessing. It's not an outright curse, but it's also it's, it's like a pseudo-blessing because all he gives to Esau is the counterpart of what Jacob received. And so he blesses Esau with these words, away from the fatness of the earth, away from the fatness of the earth shall be your dwelling. And, and, and if what we said was right, that the, that the blessing that was given to Jacob was life in the promised land, the land blessed by God, then that means that Esau's lot is life away from the promised land and away from the land blessed by God. And not only that, that's, that's as it relates to the land promise. He has to dwell away from the chosen land. And then we have these words, By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother, but then you're going to grow restless and you're going to break his yoke. And what you're going to see is that, that the supremacy that Jacob has over Esau is not a willing supremacy on Esau's end. Jacob's going to have his foot on the neck of Esau. Esau's going to hate it. Esau's going to strive against this chosen line, against this chosen seed. So we have this pseudo-blessing away from the promised land and in rebellion to the chosen offspring. This is Esau's lot. This is Esau's lot in Genesis 27. If we were to use Genesis 3.15 that framework of the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, in this story, it's really clear. Jacob receives the blessing of the seed of the woman. And Esau, in this story, receives the blessing of the seed of the serpent. And just in case we start to feel too sorry for Esau in this story, let's remember that his character as an apostate, unrepentant, ungodly, rebellious, worldly man, it's already been laid down before we ever even get to Genesis 27. This ungodly man, these tears that he's weeping, they're not real tears of repentance. We have to drive that in. And listen, as if it wasn't clear enough that Esau is the seed of the serpent, guess what he says when he realizes that he's been had by Jacob? Almost verbatim the same words of Cain who came before him. He says this, I'm going to kill my brother. My daddy's about to die, and when we bury my daddy, I'm going to bury my brother. And we'll see what happens to his blessing then. I'm going to kill him. I'm going to have my way. He's the seed of the serpent in this text. Now, it's important that we understand that Jacob and Rebekah, they got what they wanted in a certain sense. Okay, And we'll come back to that. But I want to make some appropriate qualifiers. That we need to understand that they sinned to get what they wanted, and by a large degree they got what they wanted. Jacob walked out with a blessing. But it would be wrong for us to conclude that they entirely evaded all consequences for their sin. There were severe earthly consequences for both of them for their part in this deceit plot. And so let's take Rebekah first. Remember, she loved her son. Jacob was her beloved son. She loved her son. And as this text heads in this direction, as soon as this murder plot is discovered, she has to take her beloved son... And she basically has to banish him to a far-off land until Esau's murderous anger cools down. And the last words that we read together is that she says this to her beloved son, Then I will send and bring you from there. Esau's going to kill you, so you've got to go to this land. And then I will send and bring you from there. But here's the thing. There's no record ever again in the book of Genesis of her ever again laying eyes on her beloved son. That after this deceit plot, after 
her role in, in, in this deceit plot to snatch this blessing, she sends her beloved son away, and there's no record anywhere else in the book of Genesis that she ever gets to see him again. You think she, you think she understood that that's how things were going to turn out when she sprung this plot on her husband? I don't think so. I think these are consequences for her role in this sin. And then we come to Jacob. You know, Jacob walks out with the blessing of the Lord, and we're going to come back to that. But did he evade any and all earthly consequences for his sin? And I think the clear answer to that is no, he didn't. Because as we continue reading the book of Genesis, we're going to see that this deceiver is deceived. And that this liar is lied to. And we see this happen twice as the book of Genesis plays out. In a few short chapters, Jacob is going to be deceived on his wedding night. You remember that story? He's going to wake up the morning after his wedding, listen, to a woman that he's not expecting to wake up to. He's going to be deceived. The deceiver is going to be deceived by a man named Laban. And not only that, in his old age... Jacob's going to have a beloved son named Joseph. And in his old age, his own sons are going to gather around him and lie to his face, just like he did to his father. And his sons are going to stand in his presence with a bloody garment and say, is this Joseph's garment? He's been torn to pieces by a beast when the truth was that they sold him into slavery, into Egypt. There were tremendous earthly consequences for their sin. And so, after we make those appropriate nuance exceptions, there are consequences in Genesis for their sin. I do want us to stare right in the face of of what's just right there in Genesis 27, that they planned to lie to get the blessing, and then what? They got the blessing. They planned to get it through deceit, And then Jacob walks out of Genesis 27, even though he's banished, and even though he's going to be deceived, he is the chosen offspring with the blessing of the Lord. With the blessing of the Lord. And here's here's where we come full circle. The point of Genesis 27 is the scandalous grace of God. I'll say that again. The point of Genesis 27 is the scandalous grace of God. Of God, that in spite of Jacob's clear sin, clear sin, remember we said this, broke two commandments and he deserved nothing but death. And yet, in spite of that, Genesis 27 shows us God's determined to bless whom he has chosen. God's absolutely determined to bless whom he has chosen. Exodus 33 reminds us that this is actually part of God's name. God's name in Scripture. And God's name reveals God's nature. God's name reveals who God is. And here's part of the very core of who our God is, who the God of the Bible is. Listen to part of His name in Exodus 33, verse 19. He says this, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. At the very core of who our God is, is His sovereign right to be gracious to whom He will be gracious, and to show mercy to whom He will show mercy. This is His name. This is His name. Genesis 27, Jacob clearly deserved to die, and yet God blessed him. Why? Because God can show mercy to whom He will show mercy. And God will be gracious to whom God will be gracious. And I want us to talk about that this morning. I want us to meditate on this reality in Genesis 27. Because if we're really honest, okay, myself included, if we're really honest, we got questions like this rising up in our hearts and in our minds. Almost every fiber of our being. How could God do this? How could God do this? He tried to deceive his daddy. He stood before his blind daddy and pretended to be who he was. He took the name of Yahweh and dragged it into this situation, and God blesses him in the midst of this. 
And the questions that rise up are, how could God do such a thing? How could God do this? And our difficulty with this passage and with this theme running through Scripture, the free grace of God, our difficulty shows us how deeply that this retribution, this works mindset, it shows us how deeply that that stuff is rooted in our hearts. When we ask that question, how could God, how could He do this? And it also shows us the counterpart of how desperately we need to be constantly reminded of the free grace and the sovereign mercy of our Lord and our God. Because the grace of God is the exact opposite of retribution. It's the exact opposite of works. It's the exact opposite of getting what we deserve before God. Listen to how it's worded in Romans chapter 11, verse 16. Paul says this. He says, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. And we need to realize what we're asking when we ask God's question, those questions to God. God, how could you do this? What we're asking is, on the basis of works, how could you do this? And we need to understand that the principle of grace is fundamentally opposite. How could God bless a deceitful, plotting schemer? I want to answer that question with another question. Think about that this morning. How could God bless a deceitful, plotting schemer? And I want to follow up that question with this. Who else do we prefer that God bless? Think about that this morning. There's a reason why when we walk through Genesis 27, every single character is in rebellion to God. Think about that this morning. If we don't prefer that God bless Jacob, who do we prefer that God bless? Do you understand that? If God can't bless sinners, who else is God going to bless? Do you see that this morning? That Genesis 27, it's a, it's a microcosm. It's a picture of all of humanity being guilty before God. And we know that Scripture is clear on this point. Not a righteous man in all the earth who does good and never sins. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one does good, not even one. We've all sinned. We're all in the same boat. Big, fat sinners before God. And so think about that question. If we prefer for God not to bless Jacob, who do we prefer for God to bless? All He has to work with is sinners. All He has to work with are deceitful, rebellious sinners. Those who break His law. And what that takes us to is the very foundations of the Gospel is that not one of us deserve the blessing of God. Not one of us deserve the blessing of God. And I want you to make this personal. Brothers and sisters, do you see it this morning? Is it personal to you or is it theoretical knowledge that you have rebelled and you do rebel against God? You have fallen short and you continue to fall short of the glory of God. Do you see yourself here in Genesis 27? Because the truth is that we're like Jacob. We are like Jacob. We are the deceivers that walk away with the blessing of God. That is the gospel. We have sinned against God, and yet God has blessed us in Jesus Christ freely. Freely in Christ. This is a picture of what it looks like to be a Christian for every single believer. We do not deserve the blessing of God. And when rightly understood, this concept of grace, one of the things that, that grace does is it humbles us. It humbles us. Rightly so, it humbles us. Do you know that the Bible calls the Christian life, when it reaches for a metaphor to describe the life that we're living, it calls it a walk and not a strut. You understand that? That's what it means to be a follower of Christ, that we're walking through this world, but we're not strutting through this world. Why? Because Genesis 27 reminds us that fundamentally and foundationally, 
We're not different than any other human being walking planet earth. We're no different. We're no different. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We deserve the same thing that every other sinner on planet earth deserves. And yet freely, sovereignly, disconnected from works, we found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Do you know that this morning? You didn't find merit in the presence of God. There was nothing about you. You didn't find merit in God's presence. You found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And because God chose you, He sovereignly determined to bless you, listen, in spite of your sins, in spite of your deceit, in spite of your rebellion. Christianity is a face-in-the-dirt religion. It's not a strut religion that we're better than anybody else. It's a humble worship before God. Thank You, Lord. There's nothing in me. Praise to Your name. Salvation is of the Lord. Ephesians chapter 2 reminds us of this principle of grace that it sends us to our face. It sends us in humility to our knees. This is what it does. And rightly so. When we see ourselves there, Jesus is everything to us. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So that no one may boast. Israel could look back on this situation that happened in Jacob and Esau, and you know the one thing that they couldn't say? That we were better than those Edomites. We're, Jacob was better than Esau, and we're better than those Edomites. The Gospel cuts that out. He was just like Esau. He was a schemer. And yet he was shown grace in the eyes of God. Free, sovereign mercy. This is the Gospel. So if we meditate long enough on Genesis 27 with that Gospel mindset, that very question that troubles us, it actually leads us to the heart of the Gospel. The most beautiful news that we've ever heard. That God is gracious. That God is willing to deal with us in a way that our sins don't deserve. Just on the surface. Clear knowledge of God in Genesis 27. Genesis 27 shows us that the God of the Bible is willing to treat us better than we deserve. Is that good news to you this morning? Is that good news to you this morning? God's mercy. God's grace in Christ. And we're reminded that when God extends mercy and free grace, we're reminded that it's wrapped up in a person. Jesus Christ. <laughs> the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. It's the Lord Jesus. It's the promised seed of Abraham. The one who died for your sins. The, one who, the only one who ever obeyed God. And the one who's willing to share His perfect record with you. Jesus the chosen offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And listen, Jesus becomes grace personified. And He becomes so central in us receiving grace that grace is literally wrapped up in what you do or don't do in relation to Jesus. And so we come back to these words in verse 29. Part of the Messianic blessing. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. God will be gracious to you if you will bless His Son. God will be gracious to any human being if they will receive His Son. Do you see that? That the eternal destiny of every human being is tied up in how they respond to the, to the promised one, to the chosen one. Bless Jesus and God will bless you. Curse Jesus and God promises to curse you. There's grace for our sin in Jesus Christ. And what we want to do this morning, as brothers and sisters to Christ, is we want to turn to anybody in the room today that is not in Christ. And we want to offer you this scandalous gospel. Scandalous free grace from God. Free salvation from sin. And that's exactly what we offer you in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Good news from heaven. That Jesus has done everything for you. 
Jesus has done everything for you. In the words of Isaiah 55, you can come to Christ and listen, come without, without money and without price. And you can have eternal life and it costs you nothing and you couldn't buy it anyway. It's a free gift from God that you can't earn and you can never buy. You have to receive it humbly. As a beggar before God. In humble dependence on the Lord Jesus and Him alone. This is the blessing of grace. And our prayer for you this morning is that the kindness of our God and His kindness to sinners, just like Jacob, and His kindness would lead you to repentance today. That's our prayer. Let's pray together in Jesus' name. Father, we come to You, Lord, and we ask You to work today. God, we pray that You would drive Your Word into our hearts, Lord. And we ask, God, that You would cause this Word today to kindle worship in our hearts. God, we pray that Christ would be all to us today. God, we pray that You would humble us today for the purposes of exalting Jesus in every way. In His name we pray. Amen.